Romans chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse 25 through 29, and you heard the passage read this morning, and you may have been sitting there thinking, circumcision, what does that have to do with me as a Christian in 2022? Well, I'm going to show you exactly uh, it has a lot to do with, with, with you. Paul has been um, tilling his gospel garden for, for a while to prepare us for the message that, that's coming in, in chapter 3, and he's already given us an overview of that good news in the introduction of his letter. You've probably memorized the passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel of Christ, for For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is is revealed. Paul Paul says, I have a message. I'm going to go into the details of that message. Let me tell you what it is up front. I'm eager to preach it. And I'm not ashamed of this potent message because... The gospel unleashes the, the, the power of God that brings about salvation. That, that is the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we need, God's righteousness, granted or credited to our account. And, and he says in verse 17, that's received by, by faith. And he says that's not a new truth. That's, that's the message found in the Old Testament. Um, that's Paul's message. And so before he goes into all of its beauties, he, he prepares his readers for it. Um, he shows that all people of all walks of life are, are guilty of rejecting God. The, the Gentiles suppress the truth, the, the religious people, the Jews pervert the truth, and then all people uh, deny the truth. And in our chapter, chapter 2, Paul's been applying God's righteous standards to, to religious people who, who think they're right with Him, but, but they're not. People who know right, people who have the right revelation, the right worship, they, they have the right position, they're God's people, and, and this morning they have the right ritual. And Paul's been systematically dismantling all of the places that religious people place their trust, other than, other than Christ. People who have assurance that, that they're, they're right with God, but they're not right with, with God. And, and frankly, I can hardly think of a more important topic than... Than, than assurance of your, of your salvation, be, because it's the, it's the most vital confidence a person can, can possess. I mean, can you imagine being in the middle of, of Ukraine right now and, and wondering about your eternal salvation? Um, whether you're right with God, whether you have a home in eternity, ranks above every other topic, and, because if that's not settled, nothing else is. I mean, it determines your peace in this life, it it's your confidence in the next. And that's the reason we sing songs like, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of, of glory divine. Um, and I, I've, I've counseled many people who, who struggled with assurance um, for, for any number of, of reasons, pe- people who know Christ but, but, uh, but wrestle with, with, with emotional doubts or otherwise, either because of a hyper-conscience and their conscience needs instructed, sometimes just because of weakness, weakness uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in their faith at, at a moment. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's because of, of some habitual sin, something that's overtaken them and that's, that's, that's taken away, the assurance that, that, they, that they have, and, and rightly so, and, and um, they're in travail. Their souls are in travail, and, and, 
in the middle of night, in, in the middle of the night, whenever they lay their head down on their pillow, they they they, they wonder. And and people that are in that condition uh, will do anything to gain the confidence of, of Christ. And my heart goes out to them, and I try to help them. I mean, the Bible is written so that you that you might know, but. But frankly, I worry more about the, the, the people who don't struggle with assurance at all, but should. <laughs> uh, Ligon Duncan said there are four types of people in the world. Believers that have assurance, I hope that's you this morning. Believers who don't, if that's you and you, and you, you wrestle with, with doubts at times, that that's hard, but you're going to heaven if you're a true believer. Unbelievers who don't have assurance, that's the third category, that's... That's good if, if, uh, because you know, you know you have a need. But the fourth category is unbelievers who, who do have assurance. And that's a bad category to be in. And that's the last category that Paul is going to target this morning. People who have full assurance that they're right with God and they, they shouldn't. And, and there are a few things more deadly or more harmful than false assurance. Because that person has a great need, but they don't, they don't see their, their need. I mean, if you possess the assurance of your salvation based on Christ alone, there is no greater joy or, or, or crown. Uh, a, a lot of you know um, a brother I spoke to last week, uh, Rene Gonzalez, who's a missionary for uh, Allow the Children, and a personal friend of mine. He was diagnosed um, with liver and stomach cancer, and just this last week was given three months to live if he, if he does nothing. I was talking to him on the phone, and while he was full of cancer, he was also full of assurance and joy. He lives in California, and when we were, we were getting off the phone, he said with resolute certainty, bro, if I don't see you again on this side of heaven, I will see you on the streets of gold. I mean, and he said it like he believed it, and he did. You pray for that brother. He, he, he only asked that his upcoming chemo would work uh, so that he could minister a little bit longer for Jesus. But also pray for the people that he'll minister to that think they're right with God and, and not. They, they need your prayers probably more than Renee. Which is why in our text today, Paul will pursue the, the religious man to his last fortress. In, in verses 1 through 5, Paul corrected a religious person's faulty view of themselves and their sin... In verses 6 through 11, he corrects their flawed belief about God's judgment, that it's not coming for them. In verses 12 through 16, he, he shows how that impartial judgment is going to be applied to the Gentiles who don't have the law, to the Jews who do. Last week, in verses 17 through 24, he, he addressed a, a particular problem that religious people have. They, they get too familiar with God. And, and he explained that, that if you fail to live consistently with, with what you claim to believe, Familiarity with God is not going to exempt you from judgment. You must have true religion. One that's inward, one that comes from a changed heart, and one that's wrought by the, by the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul's going to show us today. What does true religion look like? His target's still going to be religious people, but they have one final place to run. And Paul's going to, going to pursue them all the way to the end. That, they think because they, they bear an outward sign of, of, of inward grace that they should have that, that that's going to save them. Uh, there are people like the, the Catholic who attends Mass or Confession and, and believes that they're, they're heaven-bound because they, they do. Or there are people like the, 
the Hindu that, that marks their forehead with, with that little red dot of rice paste that, that shows that they outwardly that they've worshipped today. They're like the Baptist who, who keeps it in their home, maybe in the back of their Bible, their, their certificate of baptism from vacation Bible school, and they, they're relying on that in some way for salvation. Or they're like the Jew who trusts in circumcision as, a, as an outward mark, but, but they have no inward transformation. And so in verse 25 through 29, Paul will, will deal with this one final area that, that religious people claim. It's, it's religious rituals that, that are meant to, to mark something that should be on the inside of them. They're, it's an outward token that's meant to represent what's in them, but, but it's not. There's nothing in them. And Paul's saying that those symbols, the, the symbols are, are not bad in and of themselves. I mean... Outward signs like baptism, the Lord's Supper we're going to participate in tonight, they represent a, 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 an inward reality that, that's present in our hearts. But, but Paul remind, will remind us today that if, if that inward evidence is, is not there, then, then all those outward things just profit us nothing. I mean, those things are like the, the old chewing gum trick that your brother or your friend played on you, you know, where they... You open the, the wrapper, they take the gum out, and they close the wrapper, and they put it back in, and they offer you, you know, a piece of gum, and you, you pull it, there's the wrapper, but the gum is gone. So that's, that's a good analogy for these outward, outward symbols. A lot of religious people are like a, like a potato chip bag. They, they have the Lay's logo on the outside, but they're full of more air than chips whenever you open it up. I mean, it, true religion that will get you to heaven is a matter of the heart. And Paul will outline that before he's done this morning. And so in verses 25 through 29, Paul actually gives us three tests of, of true religion. You want to base your assurance on, on, on these tests. So you can examine yourself this morning. First of all, he says true religion is not based on outward rituals in, in verse 25. And then he says true religion is evidenced by converted conduct in verses 26 and 27. And finally, he says true religion is a, is a result of the Spirit's working. It's not outward rituals. It's converted conduct, which is a result of the Spirit's working in verses 28 and 29. Let, let, let's look at the, the, the first one that Paul gives us here. The first test of true religion is not based on outward rituals. Paul, Paul says ordinances or signs of faith can be either profitable or worthless. So, if you would, at verse 25, he says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. So here's, the, here's when it's profitable. It's a profitable sign. But, here's the contrast, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision is a worthless symbol. It has become uncircumcision. Even though you have it, you bear it in your flesh, it's become worthless to you. Now, you've been trained well enough to know that the little word for that begins verse 25 shows that this is a further explanation of something that's, that, that Paul's already been saying. And, in verse, and since verse 6... Paul has been proving point by point that God's righteous judgment will be impartial. Jew and Gentile will both be judged by their deeds. And, and ignorance won't be an excuse for, for the Gentile, and privilege won't be a cover for the Jew. But religious people don't believe that. 
the Jew especially doesn't believe that. They think because they have the, the right revelation, in, in this case the law of Moses, and now the right symbol, here circumcision, that that proves that God's going to be partial to them. He's going to receive their face. And so after showing how possession of the law won't protect the Jew, Paul goes after the marker of God's covenant, circumcision. And, it, and he shows when it will profit them. When will circumcision profit? When will assign profit? And then he'll, he says when it will be worthless. Be as worthless as the right has never been performed. He, he, he says this last one for, for, uh, for the end of the chapter because it's the final place that the the religious person has to run. I mean, when all else fails, religious people um, rest on an outward experience uh, for assurance of, of, of God's favor. I, I was catechized, or I was confirmed, or I was circumcised, or I was baptized, what, whatever it might be. And, and circumcision was the sign that, that God gave to the, to the Jewish people as an evidence that they were His covenant people. Uh, it's introduced in Genesis 17. If you have been on our, in our Sunday night in the equipping class in the overview of the Pentateuch, you, uh, Tim probably mentioned the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, and it's, it's, it's the foundational covenant in the, in the Bible. And that sign, the sign of that covenant was, was given in verse 17. The covenant itself was made in verse 15. And, and you should pay attention to the, to the order, because the Jews of Paul's day were, were not... It had been 25 years since God first called Abraham in chapter 12. You remember God called Abraham a pagan out of, out of, out of the land of Ur. And, and when he did, God promised Abram land, seed, and blessing. And then from chapter 12, he just progressively unfolds how he's going to bring that about. He doesn't dump the whole load on him all at once. He, he gives him a little, and, and Abraham has to follow him, which is a side note. God always gives us enough to trust him, but typically not all of the details that, that we would desire. God initiates the covenant with Abraham in chapter 12. He then establishes the covenant in chapter 15. And then he gives the sign of the covenant in, in chapter 17. God's part, the making of the covenant, is in chapter 15, right in the the center there, where God makes an unconditional promise to Abraham and, and, and his descendants. And if you know your Bible, you, you know the story. It would be a covenant that would be based on God's faithfulness alone, not anything that Abraham did or anything his descendants would, would, would do, including circumcision. In, in Genesis 15, Abraham is told he's going to be a father of many nations and he doesn't have the promised child yet, and, and so he's wondering... Well, maybe I need to go plan B. I mean, here's Eliezer of Damascus, my servant, and, and uh, maybe he's going to be my heir. And then, and then God speaks to him in Genesis 15. Listen to Genesis 15. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that's Abraham or Abram, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And and he took him outside, and he said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them, which he couldn't. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. There's faith alone. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, back in chapter 12, to give you this land to possess it. And he said... O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? 
And so then the Lord sets up the covenant. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these things to him, and he cut them in two. And he laid each half opposite the other. It's a, a scene of the covenant. It's set up. The, 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 in, a, in a covenant, the, a, a sacrifice, an animal, would, would, would be killed and would be separated. And the two would, that would make the covenant would, would, would make a promise to one another. And then they would clasp hands. And then they would walk between the, the two pieces of the dead animal. And they would say something to the effect of, may this happen to us if we break this promise that we've, we've made today. That's the covenant. And this is the... The, the, the blood symbol that, that would be there. But then listen to what Genesis 15 says. After Abraham sets up the covenant. Now then the, the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And then it says God was the one who walked through the pieces alone. Because God was the one that made the promise. And so he puts Abraham to sleep. So Abraham has no confusion. Who makes this covenant? Who keeps this covenant? Who this covenant is dependent upon? God was the one that would keep the covenant. And Abraham believed that. And that's what made him right with God. His faith in, in what God promised to do. That's chapter 15. And then in chapter 17, Abraham is then called to respond to the covenant that, that God made. Now, now remember the order, the covenant's already been made in chapter 15. It was by grace and it was through faith, but now God puts forth a sign or, or a token that would represent this covenant relationship that he would make with Abraham and then all of his descendants. And you might think of it like a wedding ring. When, when, we, have a, when we have a wedding, you, you, you say something to the effect of, uh, uh, you know, as a token of the vow just made, with this ring I be wed. I mean... The ring represents the vow. It's not the vow. It represents the vow. It's, it represents the promises that, that, that were made. And, and you're married whether you get a ring or whether you don't, or whether you lose your ring or whether you, you, know, you, you keep your ring. And God is the only one who makes the vow in Genesis 15, and, and now he gives the Jewish people a sign that he will keep the vow. He'll keep the promise. And their response was to wear the ring and then to live in relationship to the God who, who gave it to him. It's a telling moment in Scripture. And you, I mean, this is the moment where, where you find out what will God, the God of heaven, who's been lost. You remember, nobody's worshiping him or following him. Abram is a pagan in the land of Ur, and God speaks to him and calls him out, and he's going to raise up a nation to be a light to the world, to tell the world who this God is that's been forgotten and lost since the garden. What will that God require? in order to, to be in relationship with him. I mean, all the other gods around Abraham asked for sacrifices and offerings for their own benefit, but what will Yahweh require of those who bear his name? I mean, surely if he is the one true and living God, it's going to be way greater than, than what, all, what all of the, the other sacrifices are, are, are asked for. I mean, surely with all of his great promises and benefits, his demands will be great and rightfully so. But... But look at what he demands. Genesis 17. And God said further to, to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep. 
between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant, a wedding ring, between me and you. God required that his people apply a sign of the covenant that he had made with them. I mean, God's very explicit here. As for you, you will keep my covenant. I mean, God makes clear, again, whose covenant it is and who will maintain the promises. It'll be him. But now Abraham is called to respond to it, to acknowledge it, to, to receive it through circumcision, if, if you will. What will... What does God require of man in covenant with him? The requirement of Yahweh is to bear evidence that we're his. And they're living humble relationship with him. I mean, that's it. No sacrifices, no repayment, no quid pro quo. I mean, remember, Abraham is before Moses. No law yet. It isn't that God played, Abraham, played his part and Abraham played, played his part. It was all God. And Abraham believed the Lord by faith and that was credited to him as righteousness. I mean, this must have come as a shock to to Abraham, who was, a, who was a man very familiar with the, with the pagan worship of his time. And they, that, the, those false gods provided no words to follow, no commandments to keep, but the God of heaven is just the opposite. He demanded no offering for himself, but only to keep the words given to bless and to guide his people. What a different God is Abraham's God, and Abraham's God is your God who shows kindness to, to thousands and mercy to, to the weak. He, he is a God who is not served by human hands because He's the Lord of heaven and earth and He made all things in it. Circumcision was simply an outward sign of, of inward faith and, and obedience. But the Jews of Paul's day, some of them had turned it into a, a get-out-of-hell-free ritual. And they didn't trust the Lord or follow His ways. I mean, they took the ring, if you will, but they, and they believed as long as they wore it, they, will find, uh, they were fine, they were safe, even though they didn't live as if they were married. Try that with your spouse. Go live as if you're not married, and, and then whenever he or she calls you on it, say, well, I've got the ring on. And Paul says, for the outward sign of, of God's covenant to profit you, whether that's circumcision or baptism or whatever, the Lord's Supper, it must be accompanied by... By covenant reality, by covenant obedience. Look at you at verse 25. He says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. The word value means profit. It, it profits you. It will profit you on, on the last day, but only if it represents that you know the God that that, that sign represents. And that's where your ground of assurance must be. For us, baptism is this outward symbol of what God has done for us through, through Christ. I mean, are the testimonies not beautiful at, at baptism? And yet, as you sit there and you watch a baptism, I mean, you can see a picture of the gospel, them standing and coming up out of the water, but, but do the testimonies that come prior to that not inform you? I mean, do you not rejoice in your heart listening to, I, I, was, I was a sinner in this way, and, and Christ revealed himself to me in this way, and then I repented, and I believed. And now they go into the water and they come up. Does that not inform that rather than just being dunked? What happens if you're baptized and there's no true submission, no transformation, no testimony? There's only an outward symbol, but no, no obedience to God. I mean, Paul says that you're going to get wet. That's what's going to happen. And your baptism won't profit you anything in, in, in the last day. 
Did you see the, the, the article, the news article a few weeks ago about the, the Catholic priest who recited the words wrong in, in every rite of baptism that he performed for 26 years? This is not a Babylon Bee article. This is true, okay? And because he recited the words wrong, it nullified all the baptisms that he had performed for 26 years, according to the Catholic Church. He had been saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son, not I baptize you. And in the Catholic dogma, the priest is standing there as a representative of Christ. And so the priest is supposed to say, I baptize you, as if Christ is the one baptizing you. But he said, we baptize you, as if the community was, was doing that. The article quoted him by saying this, I, I do not have an exact number of people baptized between 1995 and 2021, but I believe they number in the thousands. And he said he has since quit his regular duties to, quote, dedicate his full-time ministry to helping and healing people who were affected by this mistake. There is a website that's even been set up to answer questions from worried parishioners, including, does this affect my marriage? And do I need to go to confession? I mean, listen, if your ritual is so powerless that it can be nullified by speaking the wrong words, I don't think that you should trust in that, uh, that ritual to get into heaven, do you? But that's about how much power wh whatever you're trusting in has. If it's not accompanied by, by this covenant relationship that, that should be in you. You know, the sad part about that story is they think that that ritual does have that much power. Which is why this guy quit all of his other duties to find people and try to fix it. But God is not going to look at those people in judgment and say, Oh, I see you were baptized with the right words or the wrong words. I, I'll treat you differently than everybody else, all the other sinners. He or you went through confirmation or regular confession, he's going to say, what did you do with the promise of my son and what did you do with his words in your life? That's what he's going to say. What's the evidence of that? And if that outward symbol evidences that in your life, then, then it's profitable. But if it's not, it's worthless. Paul says, don't base your assurance on a ritual. Base it on the God that evidences a changed life. Because if there's no obedience to go along with it, you should have sincere doubts. Look at, look at verse 25. He says, but if, here's the contrast, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He, after showing what makes a symbol profitable, he, he shows what makes it worthless. The verse probably doesn't land with the, with the sting that, that it should because you're, you're not Jewish. And frankly, I can't think of, a, I can't think of, of, of something to offend you with as, as calling you an uncircumcised Gentile uh, because you are an uncircumcised Gentile for the most part. But for a Jew, that was, that was a big deal. It, it meant that you were someone outside of God's covenant, Paul says circumcision was a sign of God's promise. It was a sign of God's blessing. It was the sign of God's protection and care and love. But it didn't mean a thing if the Jew didn't follow it. 
And now he says that if you received that pledge in the past, you're circumcised and you're in God's covenant, um, you become one of his people in the past, he says that still ought to be true today. And if it's not, then you're seen by God as a, as a pagan Gentile. I mean, isn't it funny how everybody that bases their assurance on an act or ritual always speaks past tense? You talk to them about the Lord instead of their current walk with God. Well, uh, I mean, well, I was baptized whenever I was 16, or, or I prayed to receive Jesus whenever I was 8 years old or whenever it was, or I, I, well, I walked to the aisle in the, in the Billy Graham crusade. But Paul says, what about right now? That's, that's what God's looking at. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the date. I don't know specific. Who cares about the date? What are you doing with Christ today? Are you believing upon Him today? That's what Paul's saying. The, out, the outward sign should be accompanied by ongoing transformation. Your past pledge should be evidenced by current practice. I mean, if you believed upon Jesus then, then you're still believing today. And covenant signs are accompanied by covenant realities, ongoing following, or or they're counterfeit markers. John MacArthur told the story of a boxer who goes into the ring um, before every opponent, and he, he turns away from his opponent to the ring, kind of like in, in Rocky, and he faces his corner and he does the, does the sign thing. And a guy who was outside of the ring watching these two guys get ready to box, and he sees the fellow do, you know, do, the, do the cross, he looks at his friends and he says, does that help? And the other guy says, it does if he can punch. <laughs> I mean, if he can't, it won't make any difference, will it? I mean, you can cross yourself 1,000 times, but if you don't know how to fight, you're going to get your brains beat out. You're going to get pummeled in the ring. I mean, it's nice to think that God's on your side. It's wonderful to have the symbols of God's salvation, but they offer you no protection if Christ is not in you. And you're not boxing a human component. You're getting in the ring with God in the judgment. And you think crossing yourself or going in water is going to preserve you from the Lord Almighty without Christ? That's what Paul's saying. He explains that in an even more piercing way. True religion is not based on rituals. And the second test is... True religion is evidenced by converted conduct. If you would at verse 26. He continues his argument here. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And remember, they're trusting in the symbol. And now he says, well, what about the guy who doesn't have the symbol at all? The guy who's not circumcised. The guy who's never been baptized. Do you not think that God's going to accept him? Paul now turns the card over and looks at the same issue from the opposite angles. The, the Jews thought that they were better off in the judgment because they had this symbol, regardless of how they lived. And they also thought that the Gentiles would be judged because they didn't have the sign. They, they didn't go through the ritual. They hadn't been to confession. They, they, they didn't receive the rite of, uh, of baptism. And Paul says, you're mistaken again. Circumcision won't matter in judgment if you're not following God, and not having it won't make any difference if you do. So he addresses the uncircumcision. It's a specific euphemism for the Gentiles, the, the ones that aren't circumcised. And Paul says that verse 25 is true. 
that the, the inward has to accompany the outward or, or it's worthless. Paul says then, then if, you, if the one keeps the righteousness of the law, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And he says, yes, it will. I mean, in other words, the Gentile who keeps the law of God is going to have covenant blessings, even if he's uncircumcised. I mean, just ask the thief on the cross who was that day in paradise with the Lord how that works. This is a radical and significant statement because it meant Gentiles would be, would be entering the kingdom on the same level as the, as the Jews. Colin Cruz says verse 25 was tantamount of saying the Jews were no better than, than pagan Gentiles. And then he ups the ante even more in 26 and 27. He says obedience to the law on the part of a Gentile will mean that their uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision, meaning in God's sight they are counted as members of God's covenant people. It, it literally says, will not his uncircumcision be reckoned as circumcision. It's, Paul uses a future passive verb, meaning that this will be a future determination by God. He, he's saying that at the judgment that's coming, in the future, on the last day, God will see them as part of His covenant people, not because they have a, a sign that marks them outwardly, but because of their humble obedience that marks them inwardly. It's His argument to religious people who are trusting in, in, in symbols. Now, again, the second time in this chapter where, where you, have to, you have to ask the question, who, who's Paul talking about so you, you don't get off track? And I think the answer is you have to keep the context tight again, like in verses 12 through 16, so you don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He is laying out an argument against religious people who are trusting in this symbol alone, saying this is what's going to, going to give me the key to heaven. People are trusting in rituals, and, he, and he's saying your circumcision doesn't mean anything if you break the law, and it isn't necessary for salvation if you keep the law because it's simply a sign of the salvation God alone has provided. I mean, again, think of the wedding ring. Paul is not saying that pagan Gentiles are able to keep the law or that they're going to be saved in the end. We know this because I think he's going to define the very Gentiles he's talking about in the next verse. Who's the true Jew? They're the ones that have been made God's people by the Spirit. MacArthur said the point is circumcision is not necessary for salvation and it's worthless without your obedience. And then to pour more salt in the wound, not only would these Gentiles receive the blessings of God, even though they're uncircumcised, they will judge you. There'll be a witness against you on the last day. Look at verse 27. Again, furthers his argument. And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, the circumcised Jew, who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. That doesn't mean that, that Gentiles are going to sit as judges over Jews in the last day. He's using them as an evidence. The prosecutor, being God, is going to use them as an evidence, one commentator said. Their obedience to the law will be evidence of what the circumcised Jew should have been and, and could have done. And if you think that Paul is out on a limb here, listen to the words of of Jesus, because he says the exact same thing. Look at Matthew 12, 41. Jesus says, Then the men of Nineveh will stand up against or with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, 
because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Gentiles, uh, the Ninevites were Gentiles, and they repented at Jonah's preaching, and they would be evidence of, of what God's people should have done in the response to the Lord's preaching. I mean, look at these Gentiles. They responded to the preaching of Jonah, and they repented, and, and you're rejecting the preaching that's coming from the lips of God himself. Paul's saying that Gentile, Gentile believers who had been transformed by God but never had the sign of, of circumcision, there will be evidence of, of what should have been in you as a Jew who did have the sign. Because true religion is accompanied by, by converted conduct. And that comes, though, by, by the Spirit's work. Here's the, the final test. The third test of true religion is... True religion is a result of the Spirit's working. Paul says it's inward, not outward. It's, it's of the heart, not of the flesh, and it's accompanied by the Spirit, not the written code. Look, look at verse 28. He wraps up his argument here and the chapter. He says, for, for he is not a Jew, you can put quotes around that, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but, but from God. Uh, studying these passages, I sent those verses to my Israeli friend Boaz in, in Israel and said, I'm praying this for you. Paul brings this whole argument together, and it starts to make perfect sense. He Perfect sense. He, he reveals who is a true Jew, true religion. Who is really part of God's covenant people. And it has nothing to do with, with their ethnicity or their rituals. And he uses three comparisons to expose the difference between a true Jew and a false Jew. Or a true believer and a, and a nominal believer. A genuine follower and one in name only. At first he says that their markings are inward, not outward. Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision of that which is outward. Remember what the term Jew meant? It's from Judah, the, the one who brought praise to God. These were the people who would bring praise to, to God. Paul says for that name to be truly valid, that, that praise must come inwardly. But the nominal believer is described as one whose religion is outward only. They observe practices that make them look like an inward believer, but, but they're not. They go to church, they're baptized, they give, they have Christian bumper stickers, they sing Christian songs. But true religion, the, God says the true believer is one who is inward, where God sees it, literally, in the secret. That's where they're, they're a believer. Meaning only the place that God can see. Second, he says, true religion is of the heart, not of the flesh. Verse 28 again. For he is not one who brings praise to God, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is one who brings praise to God, a Jew, who is one inwardly, in circumcision that which is of the, the heart. So now another contrast between the flesh and the heart, inward, outward, flesh, and heart. A nominal believer, all of, his, all of his religion is in the flesh. 
they're all things that he can accomplish. Uh, water baptism, be, behavioral reforms, uh, changes that, that, that can be done by, by the arm of his own strength. That's why he's full of pride, and now, because God now owes him payment for his, for his obedience. But for the true believer, his religion is, is from his heart. The heart is the, is the center of a person. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's the very core of your being. It's the operating center. The, and that has to be transformed on a, on a desire level. And that's what Paul means by circumcision of the, of the heart. It has to be that way. It has to be inward that brings about change outward. True spiritual change happens inwardly at the, at the heart level and then works itself out in actions. But the unbeliever tries to do the opposite way. They change everything on the outside, thinking that's going to change them on the inside. And God says, I work the other way around. If you're, troubling, if you're having trouble being consistent with behaviors, you should look at your heart. Because change doesn't happen out there before it happens in here. And finally, all of this, he says, is initiated and accomplished by the Spirit, not the written code. Look at verse 29. He said, but he is a Jew. Paul says he is a Jew, one who brings praise to God, who is one inwardly, and in circumcision which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. There's a play on words I'll show you there in a minute. And now we're getting clear insight into into who, I believe, Paul was talking about in verses 27 and 28. The the Gentile who keeps the law is one that had to have had his heart circumcised, and, and that work was accomplished by the Spirit, not a rabbi with a knife or a priest with words and water. His transformation did not come from the letter, meaning the law code itself. His transformation came from the the Holy Spirit. The law is good to show us what what is pleasing to God, but no code can transform us. Only the Spirit of God can bring about a spiritual birth that, 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 that you need. So what's the role of the law? John Piper, years ago, gave gave a helpful analogy that that stuck with me. He he said the law for a believer is like, it's like railroad tracks. It's the direction that your life should, should run in. And you're like the train that sets on those, those railroad tracks. But if there's no engine in the train, it's just dead on the tracks. There's the law. It's the way you're supposed to go to please God. And the train's on the tracks and it's dead in the water. The Spirit of God is like the fire in the engine. And now you've been born again. The Spirit of God has transformed you. Now you have the ability to run the train down the tracks. And the tracks are the law of God. But the religious person tries to pick up those tracks and make it a ladder to climb his way up into heaven rather than tracks for the Spirit-empowered train to run on. And because of that, a nominal believer's world is, is all about the written code. They're all wrapped up in the jots and the tittles and the rules and the regulations and making sure you say, I, rather than we. They're like Jesus said. They worry about tithing on mint and dill and cumin while neglecting the weightier matters of the law and because they think that they're, they're keeping the written code by, by actions only, but they're blind to their attitudes and their desires. Paul says a true believer, true religion is one that's inward, that's a believer at the heart level, that's been set aflame by the Spirit, and not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual one. You know what Paul's talking about here in the end of chapter 2? 
He's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about Jeremiah 31, 33. It's the work that was promised by God that the Jews should have known about, the circumcised Jews should have known about. This was a promise to them. At the coming of Christ, the new covenant has dawned. It's, it's not completed, but it's here. You know it, but, but this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What is the evidence in the new covenant that they are that they're the people of God, not an outward circumcision, but the law circumcised on the heart. And a circumcised life comes from a circumcised heart, which is all the pieces coming together. What was physical and literal to Abraham was a sign, and it was, it was intended to have spiritual significance to us. Abraham circumcised physically, in the place where sin was passed on, it symbolized the cutting away of one's sin nature, anticipating God doing that to our heart and then ultimately removing all sin nature. And in doing that act, Abraham placed himself and all of his descendants after him under God's lordship in anticipation for when Christ would come, the real seed would come, the true seed, and then the Spirit would apply his work to all believers. And Paul says we have that circumcision done to our hearts as new covenant believers. And when we do, we place the most inward part of ourselves, our very souls, our very hearts under Christ's lordship. And it's not seen by an outward sign, but by an inward change. And so now that Christ has come, the sign of the covenant and its intent has given away to the fulfillment of, and our hearts are now God's, and that's the meaning of heart circumcision. The believer's will is totally Christ's. To use as he wills, all his emotions, mind, intellect, and will are dedicated and available, ready at the command of Jesus Christ to be used for his purposes. And Paul says that if that has happened to you through Jesus Christ, you are the true circumcision. That's what he says to the Philippians. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says the same thing there. And that person will have praise from God on the last day. Look at verse 29. Here's the play on words I was telling you about. He is a Jew who is not one inwardly, but circumcision, which is of the heart, by the spirit, not of the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. A Jew, true Jew, is one who brings praise to God. And now Paul says, that one who's a true Jew, who's had a circumcised heart, who believes God by faith alone and trusts in God's promise alone, he will receive praise from God on the last day. His life brings praise to God here, and he'll receive praise from God whenever he stands before him one day. Can, can you hear the, the teachings of Jesus echoing in the background? Practice your righteousness before your heavenly Father. Being in heaven, don't practice your righteousness before men on the earth to be praised by them. 
This man's praise is not from other people, presumably from other Jews or other casual Christians, but from God, and that praise will be on the last day, on the day of, of reckoning. So where can you find assurance? Where will you place your trust? Um, don't place it in the wedding ring. Place it in the groom. The Son of God who alone took the vows. The Son of God who, who is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The, the God who walked between the pieces, in this case, the, the God who hung on the cross and bore God's wrath on his own. The, the groom who was obedient to the Father, who purchased his bride. And if you're part of the kingdom, you're part of his bride. You purchased his bride with his own blood, laying down his life so that whosoever believeth in him could have eternal life. And if you have that eternal life, wear the wedding ring. Go in the waters of baptism. Take the Lord's Supper tonight. Rejoice in that because it represents what Christ did for you inside. But if you don't have that in you, you can come tonight and you can eat the juice. You can drink, drink the juice, eat the bread. And it's worthless. Christ is the sure ground of your assurance. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for strength, my feeble attempt to make it plain. I do pray right now, Lord, for any believer that's here or listening, one of your own, one of your sheep, that's struggling with, with assurance, who knows why, maybe weak faith, maybe some habitual sin that they can't overcome. I pray, Lord, that you would give them assurance. It's truly, you're tr they're truly yours. And that that would be power for them to, to dig out of the hole that, that, that they're in. But Lord, I also pray for, for, the, for the one that, that, that's here that, that might be yours outwardly, religious, and they think because they've participated in something or done something in the past, because they wear the ring, that, 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 they're, that they're married, but they're not acting like a married spouse. I, I, I pray that today they would repent, they'd come back to you, and they'd receive the sweet blessings that, that come from walking in relationship with you. Lord, um, give them a fire in their engine that might be sitting dead on the tracks. May they lay the ladder down and stop trying to climb up to you, but receive by grace your promise that you've made. And I ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.